Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio episode 149 with Johnny Blackburn. As we develop more emotional presence, the ability to be with, allow, feel, and metabolize and release, then the more and more kind of like clouds can like come, be felt, give us information and float away. But then when we hold on to them, suppress them, don't feel them, numb them, then it's kind of like that we get more and more cloud cover over our essential joy and like passion and liveness and vitality. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent, and welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. Prepare for the deep dive in this podcast. We're talking with my personal men's coach from over five years and an international speaker, the founder of the Evolving Men's Collective and new best-selling author of a paradigm-shattering book, Presence, Awakening Greater Potential in Work, Love, and Life. And isn't that why we listen to podcasts? Because health, wealth, relationships, aren't they at the core of our emotional and physical intelligence? I am so excited. Well, I mean, excited isn't even the right word. This episode brought me a lot of honor, true belly honor, deep down around the work that I know if you're here with us, you do this work as well, how we can show up every single day as that best version of ourselves. This is one of my all-time favorite podcasts recorded live here at my place in Encinitas. And before we get into this blockbuster episode, this is your public service beacon to remind you that your immune system during this time of year gets to receive support. From natural foods, it's when most of the people I know come down with some kind of sickness or flu because there's a lot of stress during this holiday time. We shop and work and work out and wrap presents and all that good stuff. This is why this time of year, it's so important to boost your immune system. And you can do that and save some money at the same time by heading over to our show sponsor, shoporganifi.com to pick up Organifi Green Juice Powder. Yeah, it's a powder. I was blown away the first time I heard about it too. I do not have a muscle in my body that wants to continue to juice fruit and vegetables only to throw away the pulp. It just doesn't sound that exciting to me anymore. So Organifi has locked arms with Wellness Force. They believe in our mission. We believe in theirs. Because you're part of the show, you get 20% off 20%. The entire website over at shoporganifi.com. Just enter code wellnessforce. And I have some protein on the way next week. I'll let you know what I think. I've heard it tastes like ice cream. But the green juice I've tried and I felt the clarity and energy pop. It's going to provide you with these nutrient-dense micros spirulina, ashwagandha, turmeric, chlorella, a ton more to give you a boost for your day. So give your body some love, save some money during the holidays, get that immune system uplift over at shoporganifi.com and save some money by entering code wellnessforce at checkout. Now let's drop into this podcast to the basement with my friend, Johnny Blackburn. You know, five years ago, when I met Johnny, I was in a really challenging spot where we all go through this, right? Identity shifts. I went from being a trainer to being in a cubicle to committing spiritual suicide. And then I found men's work and it made such an impact. This has been a requested podcast by many of the people in our Facebook group around this intelligence, whether you're a man or a woman, how do we have more presence? How do we show up fully in the moment with all these distractions around us? What I love most about Johnny is not only what he's overcome personally, his health issues, his thresholds that he has gone through with such courage, such determination, but now how he serves people, not just here in Southern California, but through his course and book now across the world. 
We'll talk about how holotropic breathing and other breath practices can be an incredible healing tool. Johnny tells us about behavioral flexibility, how that plugs into sustainable behavior change. We'll go over the emergent process, how to apply embodiment, relaxation, and awareness in your life, and why it's so important to say yes to our hero's journey and embrace that process of separation, initiation, and return to develop ourselves so that we can show up for the people we love and live our life well. All right, let's step in with Johnny Blackburn. You know, I read the book and I just felt the entire time I was reading it, like you've come from this place of calm confidence your entire life, man. Where do you pull that from? Well, I don't know if that's the case. I feel like the injury was a big teacher around that. I kind of had the choice to like play victim while was me or to really embrace my circumstances and make the best of it. And at the beginning when I was completely floored and, you know, 22 hours a day, I thought, well, you know, how about all those things that I said I would do in the future when I had more time? Now I got plenty of time. So obviously I was physically limited, but, you know, I started reading books. I started meditating. I started watching classic movies. I was kind of learning language. So there was this quality of really like, this is here like I'm embracing what is. And I think that's the real root of that sense of kind of grounded confidence. I've known you since 2012. The connection with you runs deep. You've Mm -hmm. seen me cry probably more than my own brother. (laughs) So like having you on the podcast today, just such a treat for myself and this audience, because we're all searching Johnny for this physical and emotional intelligence. That's what you bring to your groups, to your facilitation process. And really you're 20 years of work that you've been diving in on this. So, you know, your official title, coach, speaker, facilitator, author at Presence Academy. And I know you as the founder of the Evolving Men's Collective. So you're everywhere online, but what's something about you that people don't know? What's something that they might not know that's not out there on the internet? Well, I think you and I have talked about, we love hacking and kind of geeking out on stuff. And We're uh, sitting in my room with the juve light on, by the way. Right. So I think it's an epic time to be alive and there's so much kind of potential to integrate technology for more feedback. So that's a thing that I kind of geek out on my personal life. Like I have all kinds of gadgets, like I work with a breath monitor and and heart math to like, you know, just bring more awareness. And I have all these kind of eccentric kind of tracking things that I do. We would go in our men's groups and we would be the ones talking about like, what kind of device are you wearing? Have you used Spire? Totally. (laughs) And everybody be looking at us like, are these guys high? Right. No, we're just excited about this, right? So this kind of human optimization Uh, Ever since I met you, I was in this place in my life. I'd love to share this for context here. 2012, I'm dating a woman and she gave me so much. Her name was Amy and, and I got introduced to you through her, through a mutual friend, Paul. And I come to your first group and I'm feeling these feelings in my stomach and I'm feeling these feelings in my chest. And I'm sitting around and there's like, you know, 30 year olds, 40 year olds, 50 year olds, like really talking about their feelings, really talking about their emotions. And at that time, I had never really explored Somatic awareness, emotional intelligence, emotional expression. Like I had come from the age, which a lot of men do, where you put dirt on it if it hurts and you just get back out there. And so I just to paint a picture here, you know, I'm in this troubling time in my life. This is three years before the podcast. I had just left personal training. I was about to go into this software sales journey that like led me to forging my uncomfortability to then launch the podcast. In that space, there you were. Like, it was almost as if you were literally Johnny Utah, Johnny Blackburn. You've always had this kind of mystique to me. So I know you as a brother. I know you as a friend. I know you as a teacher. And I think that's why, man, I'm just so stoked to dive into this conversation today. Just to set the context to 2012, totally different life. What were you doing in 2012 compared to where you are now, all you've created now in the past five years? I think that was a big turning point um, from 
cognitive understanding to really like a deeper state of, of kind of embodied relaxation. I had a prolific phase of learning and sponge, like, you know, just podcasts and audios and books and books, like a book a week. And I was just, I was just ravenous. You're reading a book a week. Yeah. For a while I was ravenous for information. And then all of a sudden I just, it was like the impulse and the desire fell away and these states of deep relaxation would kind of come over me. And so I would have times where I'm just sitting still or laying still for long periods of time. So that was a big shift, I think, in my nervous system to really integrate everything. I'll apply this to all of us that I think the pace of our life is so fast. And we even, whether it's in the evenings or on the weekends or even like mini vacations, I really feel like we need more time to like, you know, I think you and I work hard and go for it in the, in the gym and in, at work. Yep. But I really think we need time to also relax and integrate. I got that lesson around 2012. I think about the past five years, you know, how much I've grown. This show didn't even exist. If you look back, can you pull a gem, man, from the five years? Obviously, we're going to talk about the book today a lot. (laughs) But in the past five years, besides the book, besides Presence Academy, what else comes up for you when you're like, wow, that was a huge lesson for me? I feel like I learned so much from my clients. As a kid, I was, and you know, really even young man, I was emotional intelligence zero. And I was not aware of what I was feeling or others at all. And so somehow through a developmental process of my nervous system, like all of a sudden there's like quite high empathy. And so, you know, sometimes I I do coaching from a practical and strategic standpoint, but a lot of times I, I work a lot with the body and emotion and kind of we're really in there together. And so as I'm feeling what that person has felt in the past, that's now coming up through their body. It's almost like I kind of, in a way, got to have that experience and I got to get the impact of what that felt like when that person did that. So in a way, it kind of spares me of having to make mistakes or kind of like harm people because it's already like my nervous system knows like, oh, that would feel like that. So don't do that. You learn through your students, through your clients, the lessons and those kind of reverberate to you. So maybe you don't have to go through as much suffering, would you say? Right. I mean, I'm really in there in the trenches feeling what they're feeling. Yeah. And that's just came to mind in terms of like a real unique learning. Yeah. Yeah. And and that probably magnifies for, you know, as you do your evolving, that's going to continue to evolve as well. Totally. Totally. So one of the quotes that I love in your book, it's the privilege of a lifetime is being and becoming who you are from Mm. Joe Campbell. Mm -hmm. One of the best movies, which we'll link in the show notes today was Finding Joe. I don't know if you've seen this film. About Joseph Campbell. About Joseph Campbell, but more about the hero's journey. And I want to go through your hero's journey, man, because I've never actually gotten to sit across from you. This is why this is such a special moment. What is your hero's journey? Like, what does that look like? (sighs) You definitely have to take a breath before that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to I wanna thank you for the question because I think it's so poignant right now. And in the age of reality TV and virtual reality, and even like the way that we kind of passively put all, so much energy and attention into fantasy sports or kind of the overly uh, violent movies, like, you know, I love martial arts, but I think there's a, there's a hyper reality that's being created. And it's this projection for what I think is the yearning for our own unique hero's journey and like having the courage to go through transitions and complete one mission at a time. Like that takes so much courage for the masculine and, um, in all of us, men and women. Yeah. So that's what I want to start with. Like that context of like 
the courage to say yes to the unique hero's journey and kind of leave the convention and seek out to learn and to heal and to develop our unique capacities to offer those in contribution to the world in our unique way. And with your context too, it's, you know, the traditional model is separation, initiation, and then return with a ton of nuances in there. Maybe take us to the separation point. I had an injury in college and then um, I was going to physical therapy and it kind of wasn't getting better. And I opted for this experimental surgery, which they no longer do. It was a back injury. They melt and heat up and melt the disc. They didn't give me enough anesthesia. So I, I was enough anesthetized that I couldn't speak, but I was like pretty aware. And it was, it was like horrendous. And, but afterwards, like, when you think about it now, it seems kind of barbaric, like you're melting the tissue. Well, that's tremendously inflammatory. And so that put me for the next five months, 22 hours a day laying on the floor. Wow. Let me just let that land <laughs> from 22 hours on the floor. I could stand up for five how, minutes How old at are you time. at this point? Young 20s. Yeah. yeah. I could stand for five minutes at a time. If I took too long of a shower, it would flare it up. It sounds like something that happened when we're 60, 70, 80, if we don't take care of ourselves. But right. how do you think that happened then? What was that? I don't know, man. And I moved home because I couldn't take care of myself. And I was staying with my parents and they had this kind of like small attic room and it was almost like this tower. Like I, I, in a way, I left the house 10 times in a year to go to the doctor. Like in a strange way, I felt like I was in prison. But, you know, I remember I went through three days of what was me. Like, why did this happen? You know, I'm a pretty good person. And then I realized like, you know what? That's not going to get me anywhere. And people don't want to be around me with that negativity. So I I made a, a mindset shift that, I just contacted some sense of trusting that this experience was happening for some reason that I didn't yet know. And I was going to take full responsibility for my situation and make the best of it. So like I was telling you earlier, I just, all those things that you say, oh, I want to do when I have more time, I had plenty of it. So I started reading books. I started meditating. I'd watch classic movies. I was listening to music and I would take walks. I started from a hundred yards at a time because again, I could stand up for five minutes. Oh my God. To then being able to walk, I would walk in half mile intervals. And I was walking like five miles a day and doing these ab exercises. If you've ever seen the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, it was kind of like that. Like, you know, at first he's kind of bitter in there, but then the wise man comes in and is like, hey man, this is where you are. Yeah. Then he starts learning and studying and cultivating and making the best of it. So that was a big shift for me. That was a separation. I left. I was stayed in the house, you know, except for taking walks and watching the sunset every night for a year left 10 times to go to the doctor. That's my separation. That's a massive separation that I think is probably one of the biggest contrasts that any 20-year-old, young 20-year-old could ever have in their life. Because when we're in our 20s, our hormones are fresh. We're so in our bodies. To have that stripped away, you can choose to either be like, cool, I'm going to live the rest of my life from love or fear. I mean, that's the ultimate message, right? So when I look at, you know, you actually talked about this in your video for your launch, the calling and the falling. What do you mean the calling and the falling? Like the calling isn't always present when we fall. Sometimes it's inspiring and sometimes it's tragic. To me, it seems like there's this muse that's been beckoning me all along. That's what the calling feels like. There's just this sense, like an instinct, like if you're hiking on a trail and you just, you don't have the map, you don't have GPS, you don't have your phone. So how do you find your way? How do we find our way? I think I can raise my hand and be like, there's been so many times in my life with no emotional GPS, which is really the whole journey of this podcast, actually. Would you consider yourself to be a lifelong learner? Totally. What is your biggest learning edge right now as we sit here before we talk about the book? What's kind of the biggest edge that you're leaning into as a learner? I think at the beginning of personal development, like I said before, there's, it seems to be more knowledge acquisition. And I think for me now it's it's more nuanced 
integration of subtleties and, and shadows and like that I'm more and more skillful in my communications and, and relations and more and more relaxed as I'm engaged in everything. And it's almost like an, a sword. We continually sharpen our sword. Sometimes, though, we get dings in the sword. Right. Um, this separation, I want to go back to initiation and then return. The initiation, that's kind of like, you know, it could be a year process. It could be a 10-year process. Right. It's not linear. It's not like it's binaural code where, you know, I'm going to spend six months working on myself and then in six months <laughs> I'll be totally healed. It, it doesn't work like that. The initiation part, what is this initiation meant for you? You know, there was a time where <laughs> my personal will was like, put me in coach, I'm ready to play. And, you know, <laughs> life has its own schedule. And that was where the humbling was of like, again, because from the previous view, when development was framed as, as kind of knowledge acquisition, that was a big shift of really like integrating it in a relaxed way into the nervous system. So I feel like my nervous system had training to do. That was like the next level of the training. What's some of the experiential workshops that you lead now? I've been to many of them, but I'd love to hear in your own words, you know, these experiences that you yeah. create for people. Because you mentioned before, like knowing is one thing, right. doing is another. This bridge in the middle is experiential. It's personal. What does that look like? And to me, that's so fun. Like, yeah. That's such a fun way to learn. Who wants to just read in a book? You, know, you got to embody it. I remember in college, I was a business management consulting major. And my favorite class was we would go into the lab like every, I think, other week. And he would create these role-playing experiential scenarios. And like, man, we would get so into this. And it was so much more engaging and so much, the absorption of that was so much deeper than like listening to a lecture. And so that's my curiosity in terms of, like I'm fascinated with learning as you're as yeah. a lifelong learner. Like how do we really translate best practices such that people can integrate them? That's a consummate question that I ask. These trainings that you do take people through a wide range of emotions. It's not just anger, sadness, joy, ecstasy. I mean, there's so many things. And I think Esther Hicks has talked about this. You know, you might be at the lowest skill sometimes in life. You might be in despair. Yeah. In order to get to ecstasy and joy, there's so many multitudes of other colors that you must feel right. in order to truly kind of earn your way to joy. Totally. Do you have some truth about that aspect where you take somebody from one side to the other there's a great quote I love by a guy named Joe Hudson, and it says, Joy is the matriarch of all emotion, and she only enters the home when all of her children are welcome. And for me, joy is like the sun that's naturally shining in our, in our hearts, and other emotions can sometimes feel like cloud cover. As we develop more emotional presence, the ability to be with, allow, feel, and metabolize and release, then the more and more kind of like clouds can like come, be felt, give us information and float away. But then when we hold on to them, suppress them, don't feel them, numb them, then it's kind of like that we get more and more cloud cover over our essential joy and like passion and mm. liveness and vitality. God, it's so true. And this metaphor I'm seeing in my mind when you speak, it's almost like there's a mirror. In the mirror, we start out in this world, it's super clear. So pure. And then things happen, whether they happen for us or to us. And kind of like each thing that happens, a tragedy, an injury, losing someone you love, it's like another layer of dirt gets passed over and we kind of forget what it's like to have a crystal clear view of fully making our decisions from love, being embodied, being powerful, and just acting from that place that I think when we're kids, we all know, like we all know totally. it's there. This kind of dissolving of the dirt. You talk about this in the book in so many ways. The book is called Presence, Awakening Greater Potential in Work, Love, and Life. Why did you write this book, man? Why did this come through you? I didn't originally intend to. 
I remember in grad school in psychology, like my mentor saying like, oh, wow, you know, I, I really appreciate your writing. You should write a book. And at the time, <laughs> I was so tired of writing that thesis, but I just kind of said, you know, perhaps if I ever feel inspired, like I did never want to come from it like, oh, I'm going to write a book because I, I should, or I'm supposed to, or you got to do this for your It might group. not even been sustainable if you came from that source. And it wouldn't have been interesting. Yeah. I, you know, those aren't, you can kind of tell. So I would just kind of come out of morning meditation and all there would just be this kind of like insight about this kind of skill or way of being. And I, I just get on my computer and, you know, put that paragraph down and file away in a folder. Week later, same thing. Another, this one, I'm on boundaries. You know, then a few days later, okay, now I'm on emotional presence. Then a few days later, and all of a sudden, over the course of you know four, five, six months, all of a sudden, the frequency with which this was happening was happening more and more. That initial writing was very, very inspired. Then it was a process of like, okay, what's this called? What what's the title? And then how do I structure it? So I ended up coming with twenty skills, but you know, even that was a creative process where it originally had a completely different format and I was just really having to sit with it of like, what does this want to be? How do we really teach this? So, you know, to that extent, it was a really creative emergent process. The emergent process, you mentioned this phrase emergence, what's emerging in your book a ton. And there's some skills that you talk about. You kind of break it down really easily for people to understand. I almost feel like for emotional intelligence, your book is like a choose your own adventure. You could go in there and people are familiar with Tim Ferriss's work, uh-huh. the way that you've written it. People don't have to go start to finish. I mean, they can kind of dive into a chapter that feels most, you know, magnetized towards them. But the skills you talk about are embodiment, connection, and awareness. A few examples of embodiment, breath and body sensing and grounding. Breath for me has been huge. Uh, I have a lot of uh, love and appreciation for you really teaching me what it's like to have breath. I remember three, four years ago, I was sitting in group and Mike Hartoski was like, why don't you pull up your shirt and just let your belly stick out? And why don't you just let us fully allow you to be seen? And I was so petrified because I came from this like early memory that was burned in where, you know, it wasn't okay to show my stomach because if I showed my stomach, then it means that people would see how fat I am. Do you have something like that? Do you have an anchor that you've gotten through, that you've done your men's work around, your group work around, where you didn't want to be seen, but then you just allowed yourself to be seen? My eyes. What about your eyes? Eight months old, I had pneumonia, fever, and seizures, and my eyes went crossed and my vision blurred. At the time, they, my mom took me to UCLA. That was like the leading center, and what they were doing at the time was patching one eye for a whole day and the other eye for a whole day. Well, this was UCLA, but it's in, you know, 80. So what they now know is that's not a good thing because during eight months old to a year and a half is when your binocular cells are developing. And what that is, is basically in the back and the visual center that helps diffuse the visual images from both hemispheres. So actually one brain is seeing part of the visual field. The other side is feeling, seeing the other part of the visual field. And then these binocular cells help us diffuse the image. So my most of my life, my vision was like super blurred. And when I would take it off, I couldn't see. And then if I take it off my eyes, you know, the alignment was off. Then I ended up having surgery at a year and a half old. So from a very, very young, like there's pictures of me in a baby crib with like thick glasses on. <laughs> um, They're like, who's this little baby computer programmer? Right. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the eyes are a really vulnerable thing. You know, I think, yeah, that combined with my fear of being judged um, and an early trauma at two had me most of my life not make eye contact with people, really afraid to make eye contact. You know, I think there's a, the eyes are connected to vulnerability and being seen. Mm. Like there's, I think, a way we say, you know, if, well, if they can see in me, then they can judge me. Or if they, if they can see in me, then they won't see this thing that I'm ashamed of. And then, then they won't know. 
Yeah. And the healing work begins and it's a continuum. You talked about this also in connection and awareness being attuned. This term attunement, if somebody doesn't know anything about emotional intelligence and they're just kind of leaning into what that is for them, how would you describe attunement? Someone who's really attuned. I like metaphors. Um, if you've ever seen bands warming up, then you see the musicians kind of like playing their instruments and they're kind of like pinging to see if the instruments are playing in a resonance. Now, I don't play an instrument at all. But when I notice they do this, like it's fascinating the way that they're really sensing and feeling the sound that they sync up the sound between each other. So that's one way. And another way for you athletes out there is, you know, if you're, whether it's basketball or, or football, like receiver, defender, DB, like there's a way in which the defensive back, like he's very much sensing and attuning to the receiver to like, see, is he going to stop? Is he going to cut? Is he going to kind of like go around? And when is the ball coming? So that same thing happens in connection. Dan Siegel talks a lot about this, that like every second, there's thousands of micro pings from our nervous system, sensing body language, emotion, tonality, um, movement, and emotion. And that all of these things are giving us like a, you know, multi-layered picture of like this expression and then how we can kind of respond and relate to that. One example you've told me in person, and I believe it's in your writing, is these microscopic facial muscles that we have. Mm -hmm. When we see someone, we're hardwired for either, is this person safe or should I be in fear? Should I be kind of attuned to the danger? Tell us about these microscopic muscles in the face where we can sense in literally less than a half a second if someone's safe or not. Totally. Well, we needed to develop this because apparently evolutionarily our, you know, Paleolithic wandering ancestors were more likely to be killed by another man than they were by harsh conditions of living. So there's a, I think deep in our kind of genetic nervous system or the morphic field of our humanity is this, this split second sensing, like, is this person safe? And that's at the physical level. And at the emotional level, if we were rejected and abandoned from the tribe, then we're, we're literally going to starve on the plains. We can't survive. Yep. So those two things are really deeply anchored into our nervous system to not be physically harmed and to not be emotionally rejected. And so in a way, these sensory mechanisms are faster than thought and words. So yeah, we do. I think research at Harvard is like milliseconds. We size somebody and sense them up. We just, you know, you can't help it. Your nervous system's doing this. And it was really kind of meant for our survival. Totally. It's so funny when people talk about like, you know, just pushing through and being the hustler and constantly being in grind mode. They kind of miss out on these nuances. Totally. Right. How do they, how do they shift that? That's a really big question. But I want to say one other thing that there's another evolutionary mechanism and through bonding. And that is because as infants, we can't talk. And we also can't regulate our own emotional state. We, our nervous system is still developing. So it really requires parental attunement to kind of come in and sense what we're feeling and mirror our state to us. And through the parents' loving relaxation, help the baby to kind of like relax their nervous system. There's a quality of being seen. There's a quality of empathy. And there's a, the quality of attunement, responsive attunement, that help my, as an infant, my nervous system develop. So I'm pinging the parent with all of these kind of like, you know, thousands of micro pings every, every minute. And it's through those mechanisms that we experience connection. So Sue Johnson's work and kind of a lot of the neuroscience that they're doing at UCLA with interpersonal neurobiology is fascinating. And they, they're hooking people up to functional MRIs and we're really understanding as we look at the brain, what's happening in connection and communication. So what's happening when I'm feeling empathy and connection to you, or what's happening when I've shut down and pulled away, what's happening when I'm feeling scared and then 
Um, how does this affect my communication? So we're learning a ton. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on neurokinetics and like what's going on in the emotional state with the MRIs, but it dovetails into my bigger question for you, which is maybe somebody who didn't receive that experiencing from their parents. Right. They didn't know what it was like to have a safe place. Right. As they grew up, their parents didn't give them those skills. Sure. Somebody might like get fallen into a big trap and they might just kind of live their life, not ever even experiencing that or knowing what that is. How might they wake up if they have that deeper calling there because it's somebody that might be really A-type and driven that doesn't think there's any value to feeling those sensory emotions and feeling those things because they don't know what it's like. Sometimes that muse we were talking about just beckons them forth to greater development. Sometimes they have a loving partner that kind of in a really safe and gentle and slow way welcomes them into safety. Sometimes they seek out healing on their own and they find a good kind of somatically or bodily oriented therapist that doesn't just let them talk or use their defenses. That really helps them feel and in resonant connection helps to reprogram that. The experiencing of emotions, the third segment in your book, you talked about this when you were mentioning the awareness. So embodiment, connection, and awareness. Mm -hmm. And by the way, your book isn't as simple as three categories, (laughs) but I just think that those are probably at the highest point, Mm -hmm. the three that people can really connect to. So if we understand awareness, you know, empathy, perspectives, impact, compassion, behavioral flexibility, Mm -hmm. that's a big one. Mm -hmm. I've never actually heard that before. How does behavioral flexibility plug into sustainable behavior change? Can you contrast those two for that person who didn't get the skills that they needed when they were young? Well, I think that's one of the most fun ones because it really allows us to express a dynamic range of of potentials. You know, in the event we did a couple weeks ago where we were kind of playing different songs and seeing how you wanted to move based upon that song, I think that's a great example of behavioral flexibility. That shows up in relating in terms of like, do I have flexibility in terms of my response? Like that you kind of bring a certain energy or or kind of like communication. Can I respond to it? A, B or C, can I pause? Like, can I compose myself even if there's a trigger coming at me and kind of take a breath and kind of do an Aikido? So in a in an interpersonal context, that's a practical example of behavior flexibility. And I think this relates to behavior change because really in order to do any behavior new, totally. you have to really be in touch with the magnitude and the ripple effect of the one that you're doing right now that's not giving you the result you want. So that awareness, that piece right there, I think is a big one. I don't know where that plugs in, Johnny, for embodiment, connection or awareness. Is it in the awareness category of like, hey, what's the emotional inventory I must take to get rid of this result that I don't want? Can you give me a context? So context might be, um, I'm 20 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm in a relationship I don't want. Mm. I'm in a job I don't want. And I'm just kind of running on angry, (laughs) running Mm -hmm. on empty and running on angry. Mm -hmm. Those are three big things for most people, you know, work, love and life and, and their health. So in that moment, how do they shift? How do they begin that shifting process? Is it in the awareness category? What's that emotional inventory look like for them to make the shift? Yeah. Scanning their body. And being aware of what they're feeling in their body is kind of the first state. Tell us about somatic awareness. This is the part where I don't know anything about this. In your book, you go into depth on this, but like somatic awareness, there are people that just specialize in this. That's all that they do. Uh, For people that don't know, like me, (laughs) what is somatic awareness? Being able to sense the relaxation and aliveness in our body. Think of it as a spectrum. So less somatic awareness would be either I'm numbing to not feel, I'm distracting my attention onto something else externally, or I'm kind of bringing my attention up in my thoughts. So those are the, probably the three most common ways that we avoid. You could call it, you could think of it as inhabiting your body. Like 
inhabiting your body from the inside out that you can really sense through your body. I remember I was talking to sports psychologist, Dr. John on the podcast, and he was saying, it's not that our muscles have the memory. It's that there's these efferent and afferent nerves that send a signal to our brain, but our brain actually stores the memory right. when we look at somatic awareness. Totally. Do you feel like people that have gone through injury or people that maybe have been physically abused or whatever, that is such a large healing process but that beginning, is it really just something that comes through them or do they just get to this point where they're like, ah, I've experienced enough. I, I must change now. I have to change. It can take either of those forms. Sometimes people have a, a kind of a healing journey on their own. That's kind of an internal and inspired process. And other times people do it with the, the kind of in relational presence and that that additional attention and presence helps their nervous system to kind of like bring up or thaw out a frozen area and that they can feel it and then like very safely, quickly release it. So for me, my somatic awareness typically is in my stomach. I feel the most kind of tension before I go on a stage or, you know, totally. a podcast or whatever it is I feel it in my stomach. What is that from a nervous system perspective? What am I experiencing there? I love Stephen Porges' work with um, the face, chest, and belly and the polyvagal theory. So, well, he was actually the, the, one of the pioneers in heart variability in the 60s or 70s. Do you think he advised heart math and all those guys? I can't say, but I okay. imagine he, he was definitely an initial pioneer. And what his work shows is the way that the, our face, chest, and belly is where we experience the most emotions. And it's also our social engagement system. So we typically feel anxiety or fear or shame in the belly. And we commonly feel anger or fear in the chest. And then when those two are activated, again, this is through a, a, the polyvagal nerve, then it kind of turns off the facial muscles. So when we're scared, then all of a sudden we kind of lose tone. Whereas when the heart opens or the chest relaxes and the belly soft and relaxed, then we can have the authentic like facial expressions that where we can smile and kind of resonate in, in kind of emotionality and connection. One of the things when we, we sense that it's a fake smile, why that is, is because actually their, their chest or their heart is tense and closed. And then they're kind of like trying to manipulate the muscles of their face versus when they really authentically smile and their hearts open, then it's like a, they're both synced up and it's like. All these are running in the background in milliseconds. Totally. That is so fascinating to me because I've probably done it myself. I think we all have. Sure. Maybe like a nervous smile or, sure. you know, we go into a social setting and, you know, we have all these things come up, like how my clothes look and everything. Sure. So how do we change in that moment? We're feeling tension in our stomach or our chest or our throat. I'd love to contrast the other two. What's the practice for that moment? So again, the more advanced we become and the more you're, we do kind of things like um, heart math and biofeedback, the more that we learn to self-regulate, the more we learn to feel and develop enough emotional presence to feel until it metabolizes and releases sometimes for 30 to 60 seconds in the beginning often it's more helpful to kind of as we're starting to learn emotional intelligence and emotional presence to do it relationally again whether it's with our spouse or like a, a body-oriented therapist because as i mentioned earlier from infancy that's actually how we that's how we start to learn emotional intelligence from attunement so you know there's certain ways in which we're kind of individuated species, but we're also very much a social organism and especially with emotion, which is again, the language of connection. So if you have a, a safe opportunity, a, a partner, a therapist, like it's, it's much easier to start to learn emotional intelligence on your inner relational context. Yeah. Other than doing it, you know, as the lone wolf, which sometimes we got to do, but yeah. 
But, but that's, uh, a, that's not sustainable, though, really, because if we always operate from being the lone wolf, how do we ever open up the space to receive support? I mean, I'm experiencing that right now with Wellness totally Force, right? Man. So we have personnel changes that we're going through, and I'm you know, buying equipment and selling this piece and getting all that pulled in. The only way I can make this happen, Johnny, yeah, yeah, yeah. is by opening up, that, yeah. that opening up process. I remember you were, I think a couple of years ago, did a, a session called Opening to Love. Mm-hmm. And so I think about opening to support, yeah, opening right. to using the attunement, the awareness of this somatic experiencing, whether it is stomach, chest, or throat. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that, man. So we're experiencing our stomach. What does the chest mean? What does the throat mean? Can you contrast those two about what we're experiencing there in those locations? Yeah, so we can dissociate out of the body or into thought, but if more of our kind of body, felt body senses in the body, then some of the other defenses we have are, are numbness or shielding. So stoicism would be kind of associated with shielding. And, that, you know, these are all protective defenses. You know, most animals that, that are four-legged, their underbelly is usually to the ground protecting itself. And it's usually pretty soft. Totally. So because if another animal swipes that, boom, they're, you know, they're bleeding and done. You know, through our evolutionary animal roots, <laughs> like the same thing, like when we're really, when this is soft and feeling, we're quite vulnerable and tender in there, you know? And um, I think there's a real wound for the masculine of like, how do I do that? Because sometimes when he starts to dive into his emotions, he touches into like younger um, vulnerabilities and then his little boy. And so he kind of like has a quandary. Well, if I go into emotional vulnerability, then all this like younger stuff comes up and I don't want to do that with my partner. So the then he's like, okay, well, I'm just going to be stoic and not feel, but then she can't feel him. So if he has his identity tied up with that around like what it means to be a man, then this is a really dangerous cocktail. And this could be the tension maybe honestly that I feel sometimes in my stomach. So then going upwards, going kind of like, you know, to the North Pole here, if we're we're feeling it in the stomach, would you say that's more doing it alone, being the lone wolf? Or what does that mean when it's located in the stomach? To extent there's individuality, but also, you know, some years in the trenches, you notice patterns. So the gold standard is to tune into it, sense it and ask Tune into it, sense it, and ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there really isn't a frame that we could put on the location of it. Let me just give you some of the patterns that you can check for, but you always need to double check. So off, typically frustration shows up in the solar plexus and fear also can show up in the solar plexus. Typically kind of shame, anxiety, or fear can kind of show up in the lower belly. Anger commonly shows up in the chest and sometimes it radiates out to the arms and the hands. There's kind of a mobilization to fight. Usually hurt and sadness is in the the center of the chest, but sadness can also feel like a cloud on top. Fear of being judged uh, will put like, like almost like a elevator door, like that covers the, kind of covers the chest and tenses this. Fear of expressing um, can often shows up in the throat. Um, but again, that's a nice starting map, but, but the best way is you, you scan your body and feel it breathe, not trying to change it, not trying to get rid of it. There's this paradox with emotion. um, When it feels that we want to get rid of it, then it's kind of like it won't leave, right? (laughs) Yes. So it needs to feel this quality of complete acceptance. Like I could feel this for hours. And then that degree of grounding allows it to be kind of metabolized. And then typically it'll release very within seconds. So it's, um, it's a humbling paradox with that. 
I'm thinking about the inventory that I've done when I was in Vipassana. I did that 10-day silent. Right. And all they talked about, you know, Goenka in the video, he talked about doing the body scans, continuously doing the body scans. We started with just a triangle on our nose and we would meditate for an hour just feeling our nose. People don't have to go into that kind of depth, but uh, beginning practice, Johnny, for this, what might they do? Body scan and focus on the area where they sense the most predominant um, sensations. Because there's answers in there. Right. It's just giving yourself permission to... Why do people not give themselves permission? That's what this is really about. Well, they don't like the discomfort. They don't hold the emotion as information. This is why I love talking to you because the connection between our emotions and our physical results could not be more of a clear bridge in this current society. Right. The fact that emotions are ignored, totally. that's the reason why there's 70% of people now, the CDC just came out with the report, seven zero are obese or overweight. Wow. There is a clear connection. Totally. Yes, the food pyramid and, and that you know paradigm has something to do with it. But a bigger piece is because people are not giving themselves permission to feel. Totally. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. And the emotional presence process has like several stages. And the first is to notice something shifted. Then the second would be to kind of name it. The research out of UCLA, functional MRI says their slogan is name it to tame it. And the very act of naming the emotion already starts to downregulate the limbic activation. So that's the first step is noticing and then naming it. And then the third piece is allowing it. And that's the critical kind of juncture because that's the place where we can have all kinds of defenses or strategies to come up to not feel. We can go out of the body, we can go into our thoughts and rationalize it or think it or try to understand it. And society is right there like a praying mantis with as many distraction tools as you could ever imagine. Dude, have a drink. Have a drink. Cheer Scroll up. Scroll on your phone. Totally. Hey, you going to the sports game this weekend? Totally. Oh, do you want some food? You know what? Don't worry about it. Forget about your diet. There's all these things. Totally. Gay Hendricks calls this weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> totally. We are literally being kind of fought yeah. by our current society. Totally. Uh, what's your message to this society right now from an emotional intelligence perspective? That that's the critical phase that they need to learn that if they get through that phase to the completely allow it and fully feel it without thinking or interpretation, just fully feel it in the sensations and breathe usually 30 to 60 seconds and then it releases. What's your exploration with breath personally? And I don't know if you've ever facilitated any workshops on breathing or experiencing breath, but have you done holotropics yourself? Mm -hmm. Have you, what does this look like for you? How do you think that's a healing tool for people? I love it. Well, I think that's one of the best central indicators for our state. In my most relaxed states of presence, Josh, in my, like, in my peak states, when I was feeling the most joy, the most relaxed, my breath was always relaxed and deep. Yeah. But then... At, you know, 95, 99% of the rest of the time, I, my breath was shallow and tense and I would always like, oh, I'm supposed to be more mindful. Okay, let me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah. my, my, the reality was, is my baseline was very, very shallow and tense. And I remember going to a biofeedback conference and I saw this little, little gadget and it looks like an old school telephone, like the, like the police detective telephone. Yeah. And you just it's very simple design. It just shows the breath per minute. And so I would sit this on my desk and I would uh, it strap a little sensor around it. And there's a sensor that, that can, that's on top of the diaphragm. It's called respirate. This was before Spire. This was like old school. And it's, it's not convenient to carry around because it's got a strap. Yeah. But I just decided like, wow, where's the area of my life where I most lose my breath while I'm working? 
So I just started to use this thing while I worked and I just trained myself to stay, stay in deeper states of relax and really train myself to get into flow states while I worked. That was my introduction to breath. And if I, as I look back all the things that I've done, I would say um, training my breath to be constantly deep and relaxed over several years was one of the greatest things that I've ever done to, to change my baseline state. I remember uh, when I sat with Aubrey Marcus and he was talking about his episode with Jamie Wheel. Um, Jamie was like, no matter what you're doing, whether it's in your work, love, or life, breath can change the wallpaper of your mind. It's literally the only autonomic response that we have direct control over. If we're conscious about our breathing, we can change anything, man. That's why I have it on my body. Like This is a life practice for me. Holotropics, um, for people that don't know, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show, but if you're listening for the first time, like how would you define yourself holotropics and breathing as a healing modality? Mm. So there's one level of kind of like throughout the day of moment to moment where I'm like sitting with clients, like that's where I'm resting my attention on my own inner breath. And then every morning I do, um, you know, for the last decade, Qigong and breath work and meditation. So that's really the way that I start my day opening my breath. So that sets the tone. And then I kind of allow that to be the anchor of attention throughout the day. It's hypoxia. It's this kind of super oxygenation of the blood. Um, Stan Groff, really famous breath worker. We all know Wim Hof. Wim Hof, super popular now. I I think it's so cool, Johnny, that we're seeing not just in the wellness space, but in every space where people are like, oh yeah, I guess breathing is kind of a big deal now. It's kind of a big deal. So what do you think? Try the, not doing it. What do you think the growth of this might mean to really the embodiment? As you talked about the connection, the awareness. How does breath kind of fuel all three of those? Oof. Yeah, I think that's probably the central organizer for all of them, isn't it? You can feel if I'm listening to you, like if I, you can sense if I'm breathing and my presence is relaxed, and then that has you feel safer. That's a common entry point into mindfulness and and awareness pointing out it's it's probably the fastest quieter of the mind like if i redirect my attention and deepen my breath so people are like wow are they breathing and the answer is yes Yes. i was counting my breath it was actually just one big breath as i was looking at you and i'm thinking about the first thing for me that goes away when i'm in an argument when i'm not coming from a place of love when i'm in tension and fear when my neck is sore the first thing that goes away is breath this training of the breath. I think, honestly, if there was one thing from this podcast, although you might argue with me, there might be more than one, but if there was one thing that people could get from this, it's the power of the breath and how that plugs into all three of those segments you talk about. Um, Is it a practice in the morning? Does it have to be in the morning? Does it have to be at night? Is there a have to in any way for a breath practice? I have a, a buddy who's a is kind of management level in his organization, and he he kind of like commandeered a broom closet in his uh, in his office and like cleaned it all out and made this little meditation uh, kind of like room hut. I mean, it, at Google you're gonna obviously have this already provided, but in the lesser organizations you don't. And so he'll go in there, you know, a couple times a day, and you know I think HeartMath protocols to do five minutes a day three times, and so he'll just do that for five minutes and like reconnect with his breath and it totally changes his state when he's kind of relating with um you know the people he's managing and, and clients and stuff so um the more that we have tech and simple solutions like spire to really help bring awareness into our day so it's not so cumbersome as having to carry around the you know the telephone thing that's where i think technology is going to really allow human embodiment and the evolution of consciousness to kind of like rapidly in, improve 
So maybe more powerful, what I'm hearing from you is throughout the day, an awareness and attunement of the breath, not necessarily a chunk in the morning or a chunk at night. But I think something in the morning is important to start your day, like Tony Robbins called it the, the hour of power, because that really sets the tone for the relaxation of your nervous system. And when you start to get into the awareness section, that you know connecting to greater vantages is also important in terms of stabilizing um, higher states. So you got to set the tone every day. If not, if you just wake up and jump right into your computer, <laughs> which so many people do. The one thing that we learned from Tom Bilyeu on the show was if you start your day under the influence of someone else, if in that first hour of you being awake, you're answering emails, you're on your phone, you have given away your power for the entire day. Fair and you know, there's many people that are in the personal realm. They're like, you win the first hour, you win your whole day. Totally. What's your dream routine? What's your routine right now personally for you? Um, I've been doing keto for the last four four months or so, and I wake up at like 5 a.m. like a beast, man. And so <laughs> I have so much more energy. And um, then I typically do a couple different types of breath work and uh, a Wim Hof and a, and a fire breath, and then I'll do a Qigong, and that gets me around 30 minutes, and then I'll typically do a 30-minute meditation. And so that's just setting up the day like with such vitality, relaxation, openness, like the joy. That's that's setting the tone for my whole day, and then I'm orienting to what are my highest priority tasks um, in terms of my professional projects, and like then I'm really like that morning is like my most productive work period. So usually I'll have a, a quick shake or breakfast, and then get right into work for those first few hours. And that's my usually my most prolific work time. The impact if you miss, do you really notice it if you miss? Not anymore. If I didn't do it for quite a number of days, yes, but there's a pretty pretty stable pretty stable access to presence. I love that we're talking about presence, which obviously is really what you represent, man. It's your book, it's you. When I think of Johnny Blackburn, I'm like, "Oh yeah, presence. That's really who you are. That's what your message is, I think, to the world. When we look at presence in the dynamic of men and women, masculine, feminine, it's a whole nother podcast, by the oh way. But God, I, I mean, we could do literally an entire That's show. That's one of my favorites. This dynamic now, we're in this land of exponential technology, mass distraction, the shifting of roles between the masculine and feminine as well. What is kind of your encapsulation of the masculine and feminine balancing act that we're How in right now. How much time do we have? <laughs> we got all the time we need, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm on the edge of my seat. I know somebody listening is because this is a topic that we've had the most requests for. People that want to know, like, how do I operate in this busy, crazy world as a true masculine energy? Yeah. And then for the women listening, like, how do they actually do that right now? There's yeah. not a clear pathway, Johnny. Yes and no. Um, I like maps and I think they're they're useful and kind of looking at at cultures and, and tendencies. And so there are several people who have a map of gender development. Um, Alison Armstrong has her four stages. Carol Gilligan has her three stages in a different voice. Um, she did a lot of research around difference in moral development of the genders or in the seventies and eighties. Um, David Data has his three stages and Martin um, Usyk, he wrote integral relationships and he's really, he's an amazing mind of our time as well. He has five stages of, of kind of like our gender development. But I think most people know David Data, so we'll talk talk through those. So as he as he sees, these are, are tendencies of the way that the energies develop, tend to develop. Now, we want to make the distinction of biology, male and female. So you want to say, no, there are different biological differences in our hormones, in our brains, and in our genitalia. Male, female. The energetics of masculine and feminine, these are potentials in both. So a male can have both masculine and feminine energies. 
Now, in the first stage, as David Data calls it, the the macho jerk is kind of like your conventional guy, like that we've gone through these stages and no very low emotional intelligence. And we just want to bull our way through everything. And we posture a lot and, um, you know, our masculinity is kind of based on proving ourselves and avoiding shame and being macho. A good example might be Donald Trump first stage, totally, right? Totally. Like a really gnarly example, but anyways. So then the second stage for the masculine, then as he starts to develop some of the more emotional intelligence and more intelligences, he gets more, into sensitivity. So you've probably seen some YouTube videos of the soft new age um, guy. <laughs> JP Sears. The snag. So that's really funny, but it's yeah. actually quite true. Like, yeah. you know, I remember a, a time going, when I was going through that phase a decade ago, so I grew my hair long and I was traveling the world. And like, I remember walking through the streets of India and I was like, I just had this flashback of, you know, I know you and I both played football. And this flashback of like playing football and like doing a drill and like going head to head somebody. And then I'm like, Wow, man, I got really soft. <laughs> That's so true. Were you wearing like a clear crystal with like wrapped in gold around your neck? You know, these like people like this, the totally. flowy like silk shirts and everything. So th- there's the other contrast. Totally. And then I had, you know, soon after that, I had a girlfriend at the time that was like, we had a talk, you know, about like our lovemaking. And she was like, you can be a little bit more aggressive and rougher when you're making love. It's kind of a little too soft. And, you know, I started to connect the dots. And so... <laughs> You know, that's when I really like soon after that, I started to kind of get into meds work. And, you know, I remember really going in the backyard and getting more in touch with my physicality and my primal and connecting with anger. And um, that's when I started doing Kung Fu. And so I feel like my, my deepest purpose and mission is awakening greater potential through our bodies and activating these kind of latent potentials of our humanity. And so that's an example of that I needed to integrate my physicality, my healthy anger, my healthy boundaries, my, you know, my ability to claim and ravish as I was kind of like transitioning out of that soft, sensitive guy. We're talking about this, you know, polarity really that, sure. that Dita talks about this um, feminine, masculine polarity. So on the masculine side, stage one, Donald Trump, stage two, flowing in India with like uh-huh. a silk garb off your neck. Uh-huh. Uh, what's phase three look like? Well, they, they're quite integrated they have all those potentials inside of them. So they might have the capacity for kind of like really relaxation and kind of emotional attunement, but then they still have the groundedness and power. So I think there's a sense of integration and embodiment in that one. And that one might be really just the gift of presence, the skill of presence, Mm -hmm. the strength of presence Mm -hmm. in that third stage masculine. Do the three exist for the feminine too? Yeah. And I just want to say like, you know, in a way let's imagine that there are more and let's imagine that more will continue to emerge. Yeah. And let's imagine that even in this third one, you know, there's several cause Yusik has five. So it's just a helpful gauge to have us understand that, Hey, there's this developmental progression and like to locate ourselves on the map and then to identify, Hey, what's the next quadrant. And then how do we kind of complete and transition out of this one? And then what is it, what would it feel like? What we know often about stage development, if you're aware of spiral dynamics is um, when you're just leaving a certain stage, it tends to be a disorienting process and they call it disintegration. And then when you, as you're entering the next beginning of the next stage, it's wobbly. So as you're going and you might trace this back in your own past as you've kind of transitioned in different phases of your career and life like Absolutely. that there's a very disorienting period of your life and then all of a sudden you you find yourself in this new community or like wow you're reading all these new books and have these new awarenesses and it's a very 
on one level of disorienting and then kind of like it teeters and wobbles like, oh no, they go back to my old friends a little bit and then I come back and until that really stabilizes. So the center of a stage is kind of stable. And I just wanted to have that context when we're talking about the gender stages is yeah. it's not a rigid thing. It's not like a rigid staircase. Like, you know, of course we can have aggressive moments, but it's also a progressive process of kind of really stabilizing some of these nuanced you know, embodied capacities into our life, into our relating, into solitude, into the relationship with food, into um, like our whole relationship with life. I think it's really powerful though for someone listening to just kind of take a breath on those three categories. You know, the first one being like totally disconnected, just going really primal and then working their way up to the second and the third. Although Mm -hmm. there is many nuances inside of those three gaps, if you will, but they exist for the feminine too, right? Right. The, The first, second and third for the feminine. Let me just say one more about you six stages because I think it'll give you better context. So he does the masculine development in terms of it, of the relationship to the feminine. So for him, the first stage is woman as mommy. Second stage is woman as sex object. Third stage is woman as kind of wife, conventional wife. Third stage is woman as muse. That it that the feminine now inspires me to be a better man. Inspires me to my spiritual development. This is what I want. Okay. <laughs> inspires me yeah. to spirituality and development and creativity. And then the, f- the fifth stage is kind of woman as equal partner. There's a sense of individuation that I have access and my, my development is turned on internally already. And then I'm willing to meet a kind of an equal partner that we're not playing the conventional roles of, of husband and wife. Like, of course you can have marriage and stuff, but now we're very much more integrated and dynamic beings. Man, thank you for explaining the nuances because it isn't just as simple as three. The pathway for the feminine side, though, and by the way, as Dita talks about, and I know you talk about, sure. the masculine and the feminine does not have everything to do with them being a man and a woman. Right. So before we talk about the, the characteristics of the feminine journey, let's contrast that a little bit. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you're always going to be in your masculine. Right. And what Dita really beautifully got was that there, in that developmental process, the second stage is, is the male integrating his kind of what had been previously shadows of the feminine. So that's why he's getting more in touch with sensitivity in this. So then if he wants to continue developing and his essence is masculine, he has a more predominant masculine essence that's oriented more towards direction and purpose and freedom, then he would then reclaim some of those other kind of energies that he has previously disowned, again, his physicality, his power, his anger, and then really opening his heart and having more spacious awareness, and then really much more integrated. The spaciousness. <laughs> the spaciousness is always there. It's like, are we actually attuned to seeing it? Right. I've met stage one women in my life. I believe um, they were coming from the same place I was, which sure. is like super primal, just yeah. connected to the beast in all of us. Sure. You know, we're half beast, half spirit. The stage one woman, can you take us through those three for the feminine as well? Data's submissive housewife, hardened career woman, again, kind of embodied, integrated feminine woman were like he holds the essential feminine qualities are receptivity and flow and kind of orientation relational orientation um so again a male the male feminine then has a receptive flowing um part in him but again there's a spectrum of like what's our kind of essence like you might have a a, a male that has a 70 percent masculine essence and a 20 percent kind of feminine Um, essence. So there's not shadows. They're not judging. They're not saying, oh, I don't understand women at all. Like there's a little bit more ability to kind of host that. But at the end of the day, I'm still oriented towards like, I want to get up and I'm oriented to purpose and I want to like take action and penetrate and be directed. And if we're on a date, I would rather be the one that's kind of driving the car. What keeps women stuck in that first stage? Like what are some of the things that keep them there? U6, five stages that are parallel to that are um, 
man as kind of like like foreigner where there's kind of a, a fear and fascination with it. Then the second stage is man as kind of hero or daddy or king. Then the third stage is man as husband. The fourth stage is man like man as an independent being. I don't need a man. So that that parallels with data second stage hardened career woman that's independent yeah. and doesn't need a man. And then the fifth stage is again that integrated being that realizes, hey, I'm, I'm good on my own and I'm a social being and I, I really want partnership. I'm, I really would love a deeply connected kind of like conscious partnership. We were talking about this in the Facebook group, how in the past, I think many men can relate to this, you know, we'll go to get the door for a woman or, you know, we'll want to do something that we don't have to do. We just want to do. We want to show her that she's special in that moment. But then I've experienced personally where the woman will say, I got it. I don't need you to get my door. Right. I don't need you to take care of me. I don't need you. What, what stage are they in there? Well, let's, you may disagree, but I kind of define this. I've got it as a masculine quality. So that's just anima- that's just a woman animating a masculine energy at the time. And again, when we understand the com- the stages it gives us understanding and compassion. So like we understand oh that's just either a masculine moment or she doesn't feel safe or like that's the stage that's kind of real for her right now. Yep. You know. And so it's our job as the masculine energy as that male presence to just not take that personally. And to just move forward. But I think it comes up again, and I've experienced this too, where, you know, I've done things from a truly loving place. Mm -hmm. Like just because I'm enjoying someone's experience Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, there's no obligation in my actions. It's just something that's coming through me, like the door opening. There's moments, though, that aren't received. And I think the contrast I've experienced in dating is that for some reason, man, I continue to attract these women that are in their masculine. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Can you solve my life, Johnny? So I would want to ask you, like, do you... Is that what you want? Nope. But I'm receiving it. So there's obviously a lesson there for me to learn. Right. Well, I want to say like, it's quite common though, in, in a way in some progressive communities, because, you know, that's the real sacredness in the humility of the developmental process and the maturation process. It's not easy and it's not common. So it makes it that much more amazing. Like to me, that's because I'm, I'm an embodiment geek. So for me, that's like a work of art when I see somebody that's done a lot of healing and they've done a lot of, you know, their practices and they're really like, they're really devoting their lives to kind of activating their potential. And you can feel it when they walk into a room, you can feel it in the way that they, they express themselves and they move in their body and they speak to me. That's beauty. There's something about an embodied woman, a woman that's truly in her feminine, Mm -hmm. that is just so powerful. I think this is the misconception. Maybe you can speak to this. In our current world, if a woman is truly feminine, like relaxed into her feminine, however you want to explain it, some people see that as a weakness, but I see it as power. Because you know how much work it takes for a woman in this modern world to be in her feminine? Yeah. If, if I see her being in her feminine and I'm, I'm like at peace because I'm just like, wow, respecting right. her so much, yeah. how much work has she done to get there? Right. What do you think blocks the woman from just relaxing into the feminine in that space? Well, this is an individual thing, but I, I just want to like appreciate this, what we're speaking to. And, you know, to me, there's a quality of radiance and dignity um, and elegance that's emitted that just has me like there's an automatic treating of respect when there's, it's like when there's self-love inside, then others treat me like this. So if I'm radiating this, then that's how the world is going to show up for me. Mm. I think the power of that is that if you see someone with the qualities that you want or that I want, I see someone with the qualities that I want. 
it will be that third stage. It right. will inspire me to continue to lean into that quality that I love that right. I'm developing in myself. Yeah. One of the things I've done with a business coach before is we took an inventory. 15 things that you want in a business partner. Well, the caveat was that at the end of the inventory, and I'll totally post my inventory in these show notes. I think it's a very valuable exercise for anyone to do. Is he was like, yeah, Josh, I know you did that for your business, but those are actually the 15 things that you want in a partner as well. It's the same thing. And so he's mm. like, you're going to get clear on your business and you're going to get clear uh-huh. on what kind of feminine you want to bring in. Uh-huh. And at the top for me, one of the very first things was, I don't want somebody who's nice. Yeah. I want somebody who's kind. Yeah. There's a big difference between those two. I think we all can kind of fake it sometimes like, oh, I'm going to be nice to this person. But being kind comes from a different place. Right. And sometimes if I'm being nice, it's coming that I'm trying to please you or I want something from you or I don't want something from you. Whereas like there's a kind of a genuine, if there's a genuine kindness that's emitted, it's freer. So this is the segment I want to ask you, man. This is really like a big question about this masculine feminine. Uh How does the masculine and the feminine, the man and the woman come from that kindness channel and not just the nice, I think niceness is what kills relationships. Yeah. Well, it happens in the beginning typically, but, um, and for the first six months you're on like best behavior, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, that's the behavioral flexibility. We we show certain parts and we hide others. (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot of clients that are dating and it can be a really great learning process because as you described going on dates with a certain energy, like it, it in a way helps us learn to navigate different kind of ways of being in different energies. It also, from an awareness perspective, it it gives us clarity of what we want and don't want. So I think there's a real growth potential in dating. You know, I think this is the big, to the other question you said, like, these energies are really maturing. And I think this is really coming up right now with the hashtag me too. And, um, what I would like everybody to understand is much of the pain and suffering comes in the less conscious stages of the maturation process. So when we were describing those five stages, you know, when the masculine is relating to women as sex object, that's more often when a lot of that trauma is, is kind of happening, which, you know, typically correlates through teenage years and and kind of twenties. So it's important to have that context. The second thing is, is how do we in our communities support the healthy maturation of these different energies? For me personally, in the trenches, I work with clients one-on-one, I work with couples, and I also love facilitating groups as we described. And for me, those experiential dynamics that we can create in the group um, exercises, I think are really powerful catalysts to having a felt sense of what that energy feels like. You know, we brought in a dance teacher to really, I think dance is such, is one of the partner dancing is one of the greatest metaphors of um, of the polarity that I really get to feel as a follow, like, hey, when am I not trusting? When am I pulling and dragging? When am I being resistant? And what is my process of going through to trust that lead such that I can really, you know, relax and surrender? And, and get out of your head and into your body, yeah. which is, again, this awareness piece. And I may polarize some people right now with what I'm about to say, and that's fine because this is just my truth, right? Sure. And I'm on the learning path as well. I think when we look at hashtag me too, it deserves respect. It deserves attention. It deserves uh, a really big bandwidth across the world. Mm-hmm. But I also think the solution does too. And that's the part right now that I'm triggered by. It's like, you guys, are we angry enough to do something about it? Can we instill six month programs, 90 day programs mm-hmm. for high school seniors mm-hmm. on how to really engage with the feminine? Like, what does that look totally. like? Because now there's this backlash, Johnny, there's this ripple that we're experiencing really, I think, as a masculine energy on the world is, it's almost like we're not exactly sure how to engage the feminine because yeah. the feminine's so upset about the hashtag me too. And one thing that you get in the kind of the fifth stage of the opposite sex is an equal partner as you realize we're all in this together. 
So I think that's an important thing that we're not feeling right now. Like we're going through a lot of the healing and kind of one thing that's really good about bringing into awareness and kind of people sharing their stories, it, it does help people to have more awareness of impact. But I think it's just the first step when, when we get into somatic and emotional healing, it's like, whatever I feel, you know, um, Bessel van der Kolk's great work, your body keeps score. It's like, we now know the neuroscience of trauma and emotional overwhelm that wasn't processed in the moment gets stored in our body. So that's where I was talking about for my back injury. There's a responsibility of like owning everything that's happened to me and still in my body. I can do sessions and in a safe, effective way, like release and desensitize like one by one. I, I made an inventory, you know, a decade or so ago of like, you know, the 50 worst things that happened to me, the times when I felt shame or anger or, and I couldn't express it and fear and all of those things, mistakes that I did and regrets. And I one by one did sessions. I just like a great goal is you just every week, you just do a session that's body oriented, EMDR, somatic experiencing, EFT tapping, and one by one specifically desensitize all of these different things. And that completely changes our nervous system and the relaxation of our body and the openness of our heart and our capacity for connection and our capacity for well-being and our capacity for joy. And that's what I want people to really get. So the hashtag me too is just really kind of like the peeking out of the plant. It's the beginning of the healing experience. Right. And I and I get that. I'm not taken away from that. I guess what I'm interested in is how do we fuel this plant? How do we feed this plant? How do we give it sunlight and food and water? And not just honestly, from my experience, from a lot of women that have been engaging with me on social, there's almost a bathing in the pain body of this. It's like, we're all hurt. We're all hurting. And it's yeah. like, yes, you are. Let's do something together about it. Right. And I love your solution. I, I think on one level to, to change it at the roots, then we have education in high schools, junior highs and high schools. Let's put programs in place here and not just be bathing in the anger about hashtag right. me too. This is my experience. And I had a client um, just yesterday, actually, a female. I knew in advance that it was something related to hashtag me too. And she texted me 15 minutes before and was like, my back's out. I'm on the ground. Like I can't drive. I can't even walk. My back's been out for the last day and a half. I can't come in. So we did a phone session and, and we were really just tracking and helping her feel, you know, it was completely related to an incident related to me too. And we really just helped her feel the shock, the fear, the helplessness, the anger that was muffled, the frozenness. And, you know, over the course of the hour, boom, it's completely gone. And she just left me a beautiful voice memo this morning of like, you know, my skeptic was, was giving this time just to make sure, but the plane's completely gone and I'm like not even stiff and I feel like relaxed and happy now. And when I think about that event, I don't have any charge on it anymore. And I think that's what I want people to get that, that awareness and speaking out. So we know that there's an impact is first, yeah. but we need to do the programs to rechange it in junior high. And then the third thing is if I've had something that's really traumatic that's happened to me, like I can do a session to desensitize and release that from my nervous system. Mm. Man, I just love your vantage point on this. So to close that container, which by the way, could be 17 shows <laughs> on hashtag me too. Uh, what is parting guidance for the masculine feminine and how both men and women can approach the hashtag me too? Oh, that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> that's too big of a question. Um, what, give me a specific question. So the specificity around Me Too is that we realize that it's shining light on something that's happening that's very terrible. Right. It's, it's a horrific thing that women are treated in this way. So we know that that pain body is rippling right. out. Men and women collectively together. How do we approach this in the most powerful way together, right. not separate? 
So I think the first thing I'll say is, while more, again, it's a different perspective kind of being in the trenches and working with people in in one-on-one sessions, working with couples and groups. So even though I think more women have been victims of of hashtag me too, you know, I still have friends and and like men men that were sexually abused. And, you know, I was physically abused at at two. I had like a violent shaking. And so um, I did several sessions to completely desensitize that from my nervous system. So the one thing I would say, whatever's mine, then I can do like a, a somatically oriented session. I recommend somatic experiencing, um, emotional freedom technique, tapping, EMDR, um, trauma release exercises are things you can do on your own. But for big traumas, I really recommend you have a skilled kind of body oriented therapist. So that's things I can do on my own. And the second thing is, you know, there's a, tr- with regards to opening, there's a really sacred trusting process that happens between the masculine and feminine. And... I don't think the masculine fully gets when he says he's going to take out the trash and he doesn't do it like that affects how open and how much she trusts him. So I think there's really a, an owning of responsibility of the masculine to be capable, competent, trustable that that affect like if he really wants her to feel safe and to be able to relax into her flowing receptive essence, then it's his job to really animate the directive like that he's a competent driver taking the relationship in a, you know, a positive, loving direction. It's such an awesome metaphor with the trash man mm. because it's an everyday thing. And I remember Dita talking about this, where if you're holding space and you're letting your woman just really express, you know, discomfort that she's having, at what point do we then say, listen, this isn't healthy for our relationship? And that's such a nuanced thing. So when we apply the same model of how long do we let the pain body expose itself from the hashtag me too before directing it towards a solution? I don't know if there's a clear answer for that, really. I, I think it's just my experience of we need to fix it now. Maybe that's just my masculine coming out. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the first, we want to be able to host it. Like, let's say in a, in a relational dynamic with masculine and feminine, like it was the same thing with emotion that when we had to like fully welcome it and not trying to change it yes, and then it could be metabolized and released. So with regards to emotional presence, you know, women talk about like, oh, I don't feel emotionally safe, but it's partly because we need to really inhabit the oak tree of grounded, loving presence that is completely okay with what she's feeling. And this is the man's work. We had someone in the community ask you personally in the thread, we'll link this in the show notes about for men that are listening to this or even women that have conscious men in their lives, what's the first one or two steps for men to be really in these supportive groups? The one that you facilitated for me for five plus years, which is honestly a big part of why I host this podcast. And so that's why this is such a special moment, man, as we wrap this interview. Uh, what are the first two things that a woman can help her man with or that the man can do from an action standpoint to get involved in these conversations and groups? So I just want to say, like, there's an overarching theme of really accepting everything before we try to change it, whether it's behavior change, whether it's my partner, whether it's an emotion. And I think that's uh, another f- breath and acceptance are both fundamental doorways into presence. When I can really be completely okay with this and host it, then I can meet it and then it can transform. So with regards to asking, like, let's say that a woman wants her man to do men's work. Like if she comes at him critical, often he will be met with defensive. It's said that the masculine, that the feminine's deepest fear is not being loved. And it's said that the masculine's deepest fear is not being good enough. So if you're triggering that, like you got to work sensitively in those areas. 
the way we can frame it is like, what if we did this? Like I did my, so she's coming like, Hey, I was thinking about doing this for me. What, like, how would you feel about trying this out for you? And we could both do this together to, you know, make our relationship better. That's a completely different invite. And the action steps are David Diaz's book, which we'll link in the show notes as well. And Robert Augustus Masters books. Those are the two intro books I recommend for men. David Data, The Way of the Superior Man, Robert Augustus Masters, To Be a Man. Then in terms of work, I, I love the Authentic Man program. I think that's a weekend that they can do to really like learn some different embodied communication skills. And then uh, I would encourage them to seek out a local men's group. The most reputable national organization is actually international the Mankind Project. They have the new warrior training weekend. One of the most novel experiences I've had in my life. I highly recommend it. Um, the quality of men's groups in area, they have related men's groups. Um, sometimes there are progressive men's groups in your area. And, you know, you would just check kind of community events areas and rest, you know, kind of like health food stores and cafes or yoga studios. And you could ask around um, or do a Google search. So I want to add a third reference there. And that's your book, Presence in that same category as Dita and Augustus Masters and Blackburn, because in that category of really taking the deep dive that's most needed just comes with ownership and responsibility. If you're feeling inspired from this conversation, you want to dive in, start with Johnny's book first because he's pulled the gems from the other two. So Johnny, this is the last part of the show, man. This is seven fast questions for your truth. Are you ready? Let's do it. What's one of the biggest lessons you've ever received from a woman? I want to feel your heart. And when I was numb, did that inspired me to help to develop more emotional intelligence and learn to open my heart and the way that she delivered it with like, I could so feel how she cared. It didn't come from criticism. Like I could feel her desire and loving care to feel it. And that was like a, that was like a gift that inspired me to do that work. Do you feel like the only way we truly learn about ourselves as a man is by being in a loving relationship with a conscious woman or through men's work? Both of those are essential. Like there's just parts of ourselves that we can't see. Like if you just did a relationship and you didn't kind of, and it doesn't have to be formal men's group, but if you didn't have really buddies that could really see you deeply and challenge you in kind of solid, loving, masculine way, like there's certain parts of yourself that don't get seen and developed and vice versa. Like there's only certain things, especially the deeper bonding patterns that come up in relationship. So there's a certain, like we talked about initial um, development comes with knowledge acquisition and learning. Then there's a certain phase where it's like, no, we actually, we're social organisms and for our development to see parts of ourselves that we can see that only can happen in relational or group context. This is my experience uh, in group, but also to speak to the feminine too. It's like I've gotten so much light shined on parts of me that have grown because I was in a a relationship with a a conscious woman. So when we look at technology, I mean, the way you've written 300 plus pages, deep dive into presence, work, love, and life, the value of presence as a really high value skill set, how will this change in the age of exponential technology as distractions increase? (laughs) Yeah, it's getting worse, isn't it? The first thing I want to say is I broke it down into skills because I think it's such a large thing and it's a nebulous thing in some of the way that some of the spiritual teachers teach it that I try to really deconstruct it and say, well, how do we cultivate greater presence? What are the key areas that it shows up in? The embodiment in the connection and and in terms of awareness. So I would really like to see um, tech and kind of wearables be integrated to help us learn some of these skills. Like I just had a conversation with a physical therapist that worked with autistic kids and there's a device that I want to try out for helping people be more grounded in. Um, so I, I like, I'm kind of in a way piecing some of these things together, but I really think 
there'll be some more integrated kind of wearables that really help us to be, um, you know, more, more present. I think about what Kevin Kelly said when he was like, you know, the technology that grows will offer problems, but that same technology will offer solutions. And it's all how so we use it. The exponential rise of tech, their presence has to be there. Totally. If not, we could actually lose touch with what it means to be human. You can't Google wisdom. There's going to be a, a time when it's not going to be such a big thing for rote memorization and knowledge. You'll just Google it. You'll you'll be able to have any information at that. So our presence, our awareness, our capacity to take perspective, our emotional intelligence, these are going to become more valued capacities. So what you're saying is people must listen to this podcast to learn from people like you. Uh, gratitude, when we don't feel like it, Johnny, how do we use gratitude and presence together? What's the beginning step for that to actually be in gratitude when our kind of selfish mind doesn't want us to be there? Right. So then we would just feel that. So presence is kind of, again, the first step is accepting things exactly as they are. Before we try to change anything or kind of shift our state, like there's a real importance to really feeling. So do we, as we scan, do we feel numbness? Do we feel frustration? Do we feel anger? And then can we feel that and we allow that? 30 seconds, poof, that releases. Then the sun shines again and there's the essential gratitude underneath. Wow. Such a lesson. I, I feel like I literally just had a session with you right now. Uh, what makes you laugh the most in life? What cracks you up in life? Well, I mean, on one level, like, again, the more that we cleared the cloud cover, then we realize joy is an inside job. And so we, we start to be able to access these states at will. One of my favorite and most joyful activities is definitely dancing. Yeah. Whether it's free form or tango, like that just brings me so much joy. And you got to have the context that remember I was for four years and two years completely floridan. So there were moments where I wondered, would I ever be able to like be normal and move again? There's an extra joy and gratitude for me to really be able to move and express through my body as I can. When something's taken away, we realize just how special it is. And then when it's given back, it's almost like this new light shines through it. So thank you for that reminder. Chills all over. If someone's listening right now and, and, you know, besides presence, which we'll link in the show notes to read the book, what is one thing they can do tomorrow morning to step into deeper presence? Not look at their phone for the first hour after they wake up and connect with their breath and um, connect more deeply with their bodies and themselves, whether that's in meditation, whether that's in, you know, putting on music and spontaneously dancing, whether that's taking a walk, whether that's just sitting on the couch and sipping their coffee without any distractions, but really being with themselves. So valuable. And the last question is something that is a continuous journey for me. And I've learned a lot from you about this wellness in our current world. How would you define wellness? What does wellness mean to you? When I hear this, what I want to say is there's a capacity to be wired for well-being. And there's a capacity to, it includes emotional intelligence and it includes body sensing. It includes the ability to kind of have a spectrum of relaxation and also aliveness. So I think that dynamic range within our bodies is an important point where we can we can feel relaxed when it's appropriate we can feel really animated and engaged and alive when appropriate and that we more and more train our nervous system to be able to feel and release various states of emotions then this is a really powerful platform for kind of well-being of course you have the physical substrates and nutrients and kind of food and macros and hydration and sunlight and sleep and like you know of course we we have the functional medicine kind of tree of all of those really important physical inputs. But in terms of kind of the, the presence related pieces that I spoke to earlier, we've got to have that relaxation to a liveness spectrum. 
Man, just so many gems in this conversation. The show notes for this podcast are going to be like 50 bullets deep. So <laughs> hop over to Wellness Force, look at the show notes. Presence.academy is where you can get the book. You also have the online course. Tell mm-hmm. us about the course, Johnny. Got a purpose course, uh, a love intimacy connection course, and a potency course. What's the potency course? That's what I'm stoked on. Basically, that's the best practices from the last decade or so that I've put in in terms of morning practices, in terms of tricks to maintain your vi- energy and vitality throughout the day, productivity hacks, you know, really how do I ma- go through my day, show up fully potent at work, but then come home relaxed and loving. Um, then I connect with my partner at life. So for me, that's kind of the, the cornerstone course of the Presence Academy that I'm most stoked on. These are video trainings, there's assessments, there's um, all kinds of experiential practices to help us integrate these things into our lives. And I really think that kind of gamified um, video training learning is the is the wave of the future. So I'm stoked on that. And this is a multitude of years in development. This is not coming after months. This is coming after years. So this is the distillation of two decades of work, you going through your own healing, you working mm-hmm. with thousands of people and hundreds of seminars distilled down to something actionable and really sequential where Mm -hmm. people can take a journey. And then the book is a reference guide. Johnny, like, thank you for just being this force of wellness in my life, man. It really means a lot that you'd come to my house. You'd work with me so deeply on a personal level and in groups. I just have so much respect for you and I have a lot of love for you, brother. So thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate you so much, man. Yeah. Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me on today's show. Remember to hit subscribe, share this podcast with somebody you care about that you think gets to hear this message. Support the show by leaving a five-star review for the podcast right now, simply by tapping on your show artwork on your iPhone. Click that purple link that says review this podcast. It helps the show reach more conscious and smart people like you, and your voice will attract more world-class guests that want to come on the show. So let them hear your voice. For all the downloads, videos, links, and free resources mentioned on the episode, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash radio. And while you're at my house on the web, join us in the Wellness Force community newsletter on that page and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.